All right, thank you. Good morning, I'm Nicholas Kondinos from InMed, the Institute for International Medicine. And we are speaking about refugee care. To get you started this morning, I want to give you a clip from the UNHCR.
what we're going to do now is a role play. So you should have either an X or an O. If you don't have a sheet, would you give us a hand and we'll give you one? What we want to do here in the next few minutes is talk about the world refugee crisis, what's telling it, the basic needs of refugees. Uh, what is a Christian attitude towards these compelling persons? And then finally, what are some action steps that you can take yourself to be involved? But first I want to picture yourself in the city of Dehuk in northern Iraq. So we have Iraq, um, Kurdistan, Kurdistan, Kurdish northern Iraq, is uh, best known at the moment for the city of Mosul. You know all know Mosul. Mosul is the ancient city of Nineveh. Two years ago, Mosul was overrun by ISIS, leaving about a million residents um, in the city under their control. Um, two weeks ago, Iraq started a military campaign to retake the city of Mosul. Um, can you imagine an urban war with a million citizens and combatants from both sides trying to take over the city? What a dangerous situation. And so with that in mind, I want you to open up your sheet. There are two scenarios. The first, we're only going to do the first scenario, so read the one at the top of the page. One of you will be a healthcare provider, and another will be an arriving refugee from the city of Mosul. So I want you to read your part, and then in a moment, start to play it out. Start your conversation between the two of you. So let's talk about how did it go? Let, let's start with you healthcare providers. How did you feel about this situation? Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Like how? I don't know what I've got. Okay. I don't know what resources I have. Sure. How do you assess them? Yes. I have a translator. Ah, <laughs> excellent. Who's going to? What's that? It's hard to redirect. Yes, hard to redirect. He, he, he kept going and going, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, how about you, who just arrived from them from Mosul? How are you feeling about this inter- encounter? Mm-hmm. And do I really believe what she's saying? Oh, yes. The trust aspect. Sure. And also, like, she should be able to help me. She's a doctor. Why is she overwhelmed, too? Like, I should see like, I'm not exactly sure what to do. Yeah. Now, any other sentiments? On, on As a refugee parent, thinking about kids with yourself, with mm-hmm. this parent, you able to talk about this. Sure. Yeah. And that was just overwhelming. I mean, how can you help me? What do you mean, how can you help me? Where do I start? Mm-hmm. Um, traumatized. Where you could help traumatized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, traumatized was, mm-hmm. was here. At least we speak the same language. It seems you seek the same language. Yes, that is a bit, of course, a huge advantage if you 
can communicate adequately. Well, we're going to talk about some principles of refugee care, and then towards the end, we'll have you switch places and do the second role play and give you a chance to apply some of what we've talked about during this session. The video referred to the rights of refugees. So one of the first things that came out of the um, formation of the United Nations was the right to asylum. And today, we have more refugees on our planet than at any other time since World War II. You can imagine in the aftermath of World War II, late 40s, early 50s, people fleeing hunger, fleeing continued conflict. Uh, The Cold War, of course, started right after World War II. And so throughout Europe and Northern Africa and Southern Asia, the kind of phenomenon we see today was still going on. So something like the entire population of Great Britain right now is um, in, in refugee status um, around the globe. So a couple of definitions. Refugee, technically speaking, refers to someone who has fled from one country to another, whereas IDP, internally displaced person, is someone who is still within their own nation but has fled due to conflict in, in most cases. And so in, in the city of, um, or in the situation of Mosul, there are internally displaced Iraqis who have fled from Mosul to Dehuk, where you just interviewed them. And there are also Syrians who have fled from um, ISIS eastward towards, uh, towards Dehuk as well. So IDPs and refugees can in, be used somewhat interchangeably. Well, this is a problem of biblical proportions, It's been going on for a long, long time. You remember in the history of ancient Israel that what happened? They were living in Israel. There was a famine. Then what happened next? So they fled for security in ancient Egypt where they were later enslaved. Exactly. And so... um, the writers of the Torah speak about this. Uh, Leviticus 19. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your own native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. There is a precedent at play. Deuteronomy 10. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourself were foreigners in Egypt. You are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourself were foreigners in Egypt. And then we're familiar more intimately with the account of the Good Samaritan. Essentially, a foreigner traveling in another land who was beaten and cared for by another foreigner in a beautiful cross-cultural act of compassion that drives many of us today. So back to the situation in uh, northern Iraq, Kurdistan. This is ISIS status as of almost two years ago. Uh, What we're looking at in red is northern Syria, southern Turkey, and northeastern Iran. 
um, and uh, Iraq. So there's been some changes over the last couple of years. Uh, some areas have been retaken. Some areas have been um, liberated. The people fleeing from ISIS have often gone to this, uh, the, the northern Iraqi city of uh, Duhuk, of Accra, of Erbil. Uh, in the spring, I was with the UNHCR in, uh, in the city of Duhuk, and I want to give you a picture of the, the refugee situation there. So what they did was take a fortress that had been built by Saddam Hussein uh, in order to exert his power among the Kurdish people. Uh, this is a fortress with barracks for about 3,000 soldiers. Been sitting empty for a few years now. And when the refugees began to arrive, they converted this fortress into a dwelling for, for the refugees. It's operated by a number of organizations. Um, UNHCR is the umbrella overriding. But then there are um, a numerous people that you'll be familiar with, International Rescue Committee, Food for the Hungry, um, UNICEF that provide specific services to the people in, in this camp. And so here we're walking into the, uh, the entrance of the uh, Accra refugee camp. The first thing you see is a parade ground surrounded by a uh, square color or a square shaped building. It looks rather empty. And there's a wonderful reason why. Uh, it's daytime and the men are working and the children are in school. And uh, so as you walk around, there, there are a few people with disabilities primarily who are not able to, uh, to hold the job um, and are staying there. But as you speak to what's mainly the women who are left, they tell you that the biggest problem of, of being a refugee is boredom. There's just not a lot to do. And now they've been here for at least two years so far, um, basically taking care of their children watching their men go off in the morning to, uh, to day jobs, and waiting, waiting, waiting. So there is indeed a school for the kids. They've been here long enough that they have established education for them. There's a health center for uh, mainly treating of chronic illnesses. There's not so much acute medical needs uh, in this setting. And a lot of posters about health. Now, if you take... 3,000 people and pack them into um, a high school, you can imagine the kind of health concerns you might have. Like what, for example? Diarrhea. Sure, TB. Lice, excellent. Yeah, you got, you got the picture. And so they have these signs here about washing your hands, drinking a lot of water, only use the latrine, only wash your clothes in these particular locations. You know, in a deliberate effort to try and avoid these diseases uh, that are contagious. Well, so the men come home um, at the end of the work day, and then the place starts to fill up um, with, some, uh, with some activity. My host is uh, Lawan Talal. He is a Kurdish attorney. Uh, who is in charge of refugee care for disabled persons. Now, Lawan has, has read the scripture. He's had numerous friends who are, who are Christians. Um, and when I speak to Lawan about his faith, he says, I am waiting for Christ to appear to me in a vision, just as Christ has appeared to several of my friends. 
And you're all probably familiar with this, uh, reports out of uh, especially Muslim countries of Muslims having dreams, visions, uh, spiritual encounters with the Christ. And of, of course, my, my reply to him is uh, the story of Thomas. You know, you don't have to put your fingers in the hole. You don't have to in order to follow the Christ. Um, but it is somewhat a testament to the move of the Holy Spirit within that region of the world. Well, if you look at refugee populations, a lot of familiar terms come to mind. We have many Afghans, Syrians, um, those from along the Burma-Thai border, uh, Somalia, as well as what's going on in South Sudan and North Sudan. And so people fleeing these conflicts are the main ones that are gathering our attention nowadays. But then there are long-standing conflicts, long-standing IDPs or refugees, for example, the Palestinian crisis, you know, where, where Palestinians were displaced 60 years ago and they are still living in displacement. So ongoing. Well, when you think about caring for refugees, what are some things that make this so extremely difficult? Hmm? Language? Language, thank you. Sheer numbers. Understanding of culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Psychological trauma. Usually, these people have fled from one poor, underdeveloped country to another poor, underdeveloped country. And so the resources available to them are non-existent or imaginary. What services were already available in in another developing country are usually strained beyond imagination in terms of food, transportation, housing, medical care, um, roads, education, the entire spectrum. And refugees tend to be needier than migrants. Usually when, when, a, when pro- someone is intentionally leaving from one country to another, they've sold their possessions, they have some cash, they have packed their things, they have made arrangements. Uh, refugees typically don't have any of that kind of, of background. They have simply run for their life and left whatever resources they had uh, behind them. Several of you mentioned trauma. You know, often these are people who are fleeing from violence, who have been traumatized themselves, um, who are displaced from their children or have ill children traveling with them, um, they are usually fleeing a conflict zone. So the right to asylum, established by the United Nations in 1951, sets out some parameters specifically regarding the, such people. The rights of refugees not to be punished or expelled, to be provided work, housing, schools, uh, to be allowed religious freedom um, and to receive proper identification and, and travel documents. Uh, one of the most touching things I, I note in uh, northern Iraq is the Christians who have fled from, from Syria and from Dahuk are being provided places of worship. Now, there are ancient Christian traditions in, in this part of the world. There are Assyrians, there are Chaldeans, um, and I was um, impressed to see how, in spite of 99.9% of the cultures being, being Muslim, that they allowed places of worship um, for, these, for these Christians. But whose job is it to provide care? 
So you have Syrian who has fled to Iraq. All right. Well, they are Syrian nationals. Is it Syria's job to provide care for them? That doesn't seem to be working so well. What about the host nation? Is it the host country's responsibility to provide care for? Well, usually these are rather poor, underdeveloped countries themselves. What about the UN? So the UN says these are the rights, but who's actually going to provide care? Well, there's a tension between all of these. And the way it actually plays out in reality is it is the, the NGOs who do all the work. And so people flee from one country to another. Usually the UN gets involved as an overseer and then starts calling on agencies to provide care. And so big names that you're familiar with, you know, International Red Cross, uh, Doctors Without Borders, are often the ones who are actually taking care of people one-on-one in these situations. So the war in Syria actually got started about five years ago with some civil protests. And the government responded with uh, a police crackdown. Um, The protesters organized themselves into armies. And then the heavy fighting started um, about four years ago. So... In the aftermath of that fighting, people began to flee. And one of the places they fled to was the Yazidi camp in Jordan. So Jordan is just to the south of, of uh, Syria. So my colleague, uh, Tim Myrick, is a physician with AIM for 20 years in the Middle East. Um, he works at the Yazidi refugee camp. But let me give you a picture of that. So in contrast to the urban fortress, um, that I described in northern Iraq. Here we are in desert Jordan. And so these people are being housed in in tents. And there are small marketplaces that have shown up. But there's lots of people around because what do the men have to do during the day? They're in a desert. There is nothing to do. They are miles and miles away from any kind of employment opportunities. Uh, They've been there for almost four years. You see these sunken holes in the ground? What do you suppose that could be? It's where they buried their dead. Yeah. Um, so not much to do in a situation like that. And you see those tents? Imagine yourself dwelling in one of those among tens of thousands. So the Yazidi camp stretches like this for about eight kilometers almost a million people living in the desert, being cared for day by day. In managing refugees, there are phases that predictably occur. And it's very helpful for us to understand that the first phase is actually pre-emergency. You see the conflict. You anticipate what the needs of the people are going to be. You're trying to mitigate the conflict. Let's get some negotiators in there and see if we can settle this thing before it mushrooms. You're also preparing yourselves. You're getting supplies ready. Um, In anticipation of the people that would be fleeing from the city of Mosul, uh, the UN established five brand new refugee centers uh, around the periphery. Knowing that as soon as there is some kind of uh, uh, liberation or downfall, that the people in the city are going to be hungry and sick and starving and scared, and they're going to run. And so, as a pre-emergency step, they've established these kind of centers. 
All right, so we've gone from pre-emergency to the crisis itself. The people are running and they are arriving to you. From a, from a health standpoint, you can look at it in terms of some statistics. You know, crude death rate. Um, for every 10,000 people in, uh, in Africa or the Middle East, about one person per, dies per day. Crude death rate is about one per day. In refugee centers, it's 50 times higher. And so you look at the world like this, where black means high death rate, and then realize that these are the areas of greatest conflicts as well. And so those who were predisposed to early demise in the beginning are at even greater risk with it. So imagine yourself back in this healthcare provider situation. What do you suppose are the most likely medical conditions that are killing people? Infections? Diarrhea? Malnutrition. What's that? Mum? What other illnesses? Measles, sure. Pneumonia, respiratory infections. Um, what is the leading cause of death in the entire world? It's pneumonia, actually. If you look at statistics for the whole globe, pneumonia is it. And so you're, you're pretty much right. Measles, because people are often under-vaccinated or unvaccinated, and, and it's easily contagious. Diarrheal infections, malaria, and then underlying malnutrition. Now, malnutrition is not usually listed as a cause of death. People who are malnourished usually die due to what? A secondary infection, right. So they die of diarrhea or pneumonia. Uh, they are impaired to begin with, and then an infectious disease is usually the actual pathology that, that, that kills them. And in, uh, in the area of, of malnutrition, in addition to just not having enough proteins and calories, there are some very common classical nutritional deficiencies, um, like pellagra, niacin deficiency, you know, scurvy, vitamin C, uh, beriberi, thiamine deficiency, which are sadly uh, common in these kind of situations. There is usually not enough food. There may be enough food for today, but not enough food for tomorrow, and so provision of this is, is one of the highest priorities. So you are overseeing a camp, which is what's going to happen in the next scenario. And as people arrive, how much water, how much food, how much space do you need to allocate per person? How much water does someone need as a bare minimum You're close. How much space do you need? Well, it's sad that we've had to develop numbers like these, that the crises are so common. But basically, yeah, 20 liters a day, if you think of in terms of uh, bathing, cooking, clothes, washing, water, sanitation, and then space, so temporary shelter, three square meters, you know, about that much. Um, 30 square meters per person if they're going to be there for an extended period of time. Well, in 
the setting where you know that people arriving are ill and they have those five or six common illnesses, what kind of medical services are you going to be preparing for in an emergency? All right. Certainly you're going to treat those acute infectious concerns, but there are other health problems that you're going to have to consider as well. Trauma, sure. What other kind of health needs? Mm-hmm. For those with uh, particularly respiratory illnesses? Hmm? STDs? Yeah, so we're going to have to think sort of beyond, we're going to treat acute infections. We're going to especially be on the lookout for waterborne illnesses. Um, what's going on in Haiti right now with regard to cholera? Right. So you remember in the aftermath of the, of the earthquake, there was a cholera epidemic. Well, now we just had the hurricane a few weeks ago, and they're anticipating a return of cholera. Well, what happened last week was the largest vaccination effort against cholera in world history. Um, they administered an oral cholera vaccine to a million Haitians in the hurricane zone. This has never been done before, uh, where we have done mass immunization uh, for cholera in anticipation of an upcoming epidemic. I hope it all works. And so um, endemic diseases, lice, scabies, you wisely mentioned, um, often is one of your concerns as well. And then you're going to have to control people's chronic diseases. There is just as much hypertension and diabetes in the developing world as there is in our own sometimes even more. And so people who, who are going to be staying with you for a while are going to need to have those issues addressed. So that is some of the ongoing medical issues. But then what about maintenance? So how are you going to provide for these people for months or years in terms of their other needs? Other needs like what? Psychosocial Education? Psychosocial support? Sure. Income? Yeah, extended housing. So they're going to need fuel. They're going to need um, more permanent kind of waste and sanitation services. Security and safety. Um, gardens, occupations. Remember the big complaint these women had? Boredom. You know. Now, certainly they all have talents, and most all of them would like to be doing something, and so organizing them or opportunities to exploit or take advantage of those skills is going to be really important. If you expect that these people are going to be with you for longer periods of time, you're going to need a health information system of some sort. How are you going to track their hypertension? And, of course, there are mobile kind of applications you can use. Paper works pretty good, too, and, uh, which is the way we do it in Angola. Um, care protocols. So if you have thousands of patients who have the same kind of illness and there's only one of you, are you going to see them all? No, there's no way. So you're going to multiply yourself by developing a protocol. If someone presents with diarrhea, you first give them 
this oral rehydration agent. And if that fails, then you administer this intravenous fluid, etc. And, and anyone who can read can learn how to manage these kind of illnesses according to the simple protocol that you have developed. And then specific kind of health issues. Yeah, mental health, disability health. What about people with chronic underlying disabilities that are going to need to receive special care? Um, there are individuals like the Kurdish attorney I mentioned whose job it is, but most people are not so privileged to have that available. And then during the maintenance phase, months to years, there are other particular stresses. One of them is just kind of security. And by security, I mean protection against physical violence. What kind of threats might exist? Sexual assault. Stealing from one another. Sure. Theft, banditry. Yes. Battles between cultural groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, domestic violence often as a response to the stresses that, that people are going through. There are also worries about military political conflicts. You know, what if someone comes into the camp and starts recruiting people to battle against such and such or you know, a force of some course. What if the people are exploited by the host country, like the Egyptians and the Hebrews? Um, these kind of, uh, of, of threats. Sometimes there, there is for, some forced repatriation going on now, where, where one country, especially Eastern Europe, says, hey, we're not going to allow any of these people in, or we're going to push them all out. They have to go home. We're not going to you know, accommodate them any, anymore. Sometimes people are accommodated in... Um, urban centers, uh, like, the, like what I mentioned in uh, the city of uh, um, Accra, those tend to be a little better off because there's jobs. You know, there are uh, especially agricultural jobs where, where people can go and do day labor and then come home at night. There's more social infrastructure. There's usually markets in the city, and there are schools for the children. And so the host country doesn't have to provide quite so much as compared to isolated camps, like the one in Jordan, where the host has to provide virtually everything for the people in an ongoing situation. Now, there are, there are pros and cons to each of these. It's easier to control people in isolated camps than if having them live uh, in a city. But understanding the pros and cons of, of both is helpful. If you have refugees staying in a host country for an extended period of time, you can imagine there might be some conflicts between them and the hosts. Uh, one of you mentioned uh, misunderstandings about culture and language. Employment. Employment. Sure, discrimination. Glut of cheap labor. What happens to all the people who have, who are nationals and have jobs, and suddenly you have all of these uh, refugee status people who are willing to work at minimum wage? And you know, uh, there's a problem of dependency, of course, where the re- the refugees among you begin after a time to expect that they will be fed and clothed and housed, um, which is a real shock when that's no longer available for them. Thank you for mentioning some of the stressors that are involved, um, the psychological stressors that often uh, 
re end up needing some kind of mental health services, uh, be that counseling or group therapy or even uh, medications to provide that. Um, the dependency situation is, is really difficult. So if we provide everything for them, their own food, their housing, their entertainment, uh, usually in isolated camps, it's very problematic. Uh, on the other hand, if you empower refugees to meet their own needs, if you say, you know, we're going to develop a council and you are the leaders and you're going to decide how to administer yourselves, that kind of independent thinking usually creates a healthier kind of situation. So the final phase is uh, repatriation or resolution, which is usually a political kind of question about when is it safe for them to go home. Almost everybody would like to be repatriated. They just want to go home. Let us go back to our own place in peace. Um, fewer of them want to stay in the host country. Um, so Syrians who fled to Iraq, some of them might want to stay in Iraq, but not usually. They want to go home. And the least popular is to immigrate to a third country, the United States, to Germany, to Belgium, Portugal. Uh, that is usually the least popular among what refugees would, would like, to do, like to do. Please just let us go home in peace. Um, most refugees return spontaneously. It's their own desire about when they think time is right, circumstances are best uh, to make them safe for them to go home. As they are going, though, as the final phase of refugee care, as people are as you're wrapping up your responsibilities and caring for them, <clears throat> They usually need documents. They need a passport. They need travel papers. They need something official that shows their refugee status. And so um, as your final farewell to them is to uh, expedite their own return back home. And so what I'd like you to do now is picture yourself back in the city of uh, Dehuk once more and read scenario number two and play that out among you. Try to apply some of what we have talked about in the last few minutes. Yeah, I'm going to have to wrap this up here. So. Okay, let's uh, wrap up your conversation. So let me make a, a few final comments. And then I'll uh, and then I'll just open it up if you have a particular question or experience that, that you'd like to share. So what can you do? What's a next step for you? Well, first of all, track these things. Stay informed with what's going on. We live in a world of distractions. Uh, let's be careful to not be distracted from some of the things that are, are most urgent or compelling uh, that are happening in the human race. Look for refugees in your own communities. I don't think you would have to go very far to find um, people in your own city who are uh, recently arrived. Now, those who arrive in the United States under refugee status get nine months of government support. They arrive here, they get health insurance for nine months, they get uh, housing for nine months, they get some assistance in learning English and in finding a job, and after nine months, it's gone which is where many, many church ministries have stepped up and to provide that, that continuity care because most people cannot adjust to living here within nine months. So look for those kind of opportunities. Volunteer with a reputable organization. If you can find a, a 
faith-based ministry in your city that is involved in this kind of care, that might be the best expression of your own faith uh, to connect with them. You may also need particular skills, uh, which is our passion at the Institute for International Medicine. Uh, We provide both didactic and experiential courses in these kind of topics, diseases of poverty, cross-cultural skills, disaster management. Uh, And then we marry that kind of of didactic background with actual field experiences where we have faculty in 25 developing nations who live on site and will receive you for a period of weeks to learn how healthcare can be done in that particular setting. So giving you both some head knowledge and some experiential skills um, as you proceed in providing care for the least of these. And then we recognize our graduates with a diploma in international medicine and public health or a diploma in public health um, for non-clinical individuals. Um, Our next course actually begins in February and I have my card at the front. Stay informed. Look for opportunities to care for refugees in your own midst. Sharpen your own skills. And then finally, from 1 Peter 2, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, all of us, to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against our soul, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We ourselves living as refugees, providing care to other refugees, being a light that raises the standard um, of Christ in people's eyes. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, it is break time, but if you want...